Hey guys, welcome back to the Honor of Kings podcast. This is Lee, um, and today we have a quick hitter episode. This is episode seven of Identifying the False Prophet, Defiling the Sanctuary. At the end of the last episode, I mentioned that in our analytics, I can see that there are a couple areas where we have a particularly large portion of listeners. And one of those is in Nigeria. So I don't know if we have one person or a bunch of people, but our uh, brothers and or sisters that are in Nigeria represent 6% of all of the listeners for Honor Podcast or Honor of Kings podcast. And so I just want to recognize them again and say thank you um, and reach out, you know, go to the Facebook page, send us a message, ask some questions, start a conversation. Um, let your let yourself be known. We'd love to know who is out there in that part of the world that's listening. And then there's another place. Uh, Georgia seems to be a real um, hot zone for us, and particularly in the city of Pooler, Georgia. Now, what these people or person, whoever's listening there, doesn't know is that Savannah is one of my favorite places. Uh, in the world and my wife's. We were married there, been traveling to Savannah for many years, even took my young daughter. Her first time she got to see the ocean was at Tybee Island. So we love Savannah. It's like a second home. And uh, of course, Detroit always be number one in my heart, but then Savannah's right there, right there with it. So um, thank you for listening too. And the same, uh, you know, hit us up on the Facebook page, you know, send a message, start a conversation, let us know who you are or, you know, whatever. We'd love to know. Um, it's really neat to see such loyal uh, listeners in places that are really engaged in the conversation and so forth. This podcast isn't about making money. It's not about likes and how many listeners we got. But at the same time, when you see there's a couple particular particular areas where you don't know people, that's the, the key these are people who have never met me, you know, and so that that's what makes it kind of neat that, uh, you know, the far-flung areas that uh, that people are actually taking this seriously and digesting this or whatever, and uh, I just really appreciate it, and thank you for listening. So we'll get a, a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into this real quick. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you, and we just ask that your your grace and your mercy and your love be on this broadcast today. People are not going to like some of the things that might be said in the upcoming episodes about certain pastors they like, certain uh, teachers and certain church organizations and so forth. And we just ask that everybody have grace with each other and we just look at the facts of your gospel as it relates to what things are going on around us. We need to understand the truth and we need, to, we need to see clearly how this false prophet, beast from the earth, is affecting us without knowing. And today's episode is going to help us to understand that in a more clear fashion. So we just thank you, Jesus, for being with us. And we thank you for the opportunity to fellowship with other believers, wherever they may be. In the mighty and holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so... The sanctuary system, that's what we're going to discuss today. Now, the first thing, when I start talking about the sanctuary, people should not, sorry, I needed a drink. People should not view this as being some kind of Torah movement. It's not that. This has nothing to do with that kind of stuff, okay? Um, But we've discussed 
How, and the many ways that the bees from the earth is creating an image or mirroring the bees from the sea. But there's still one way left, and it's the most insidious. The false teachers and false prophets will actually be hugely instrumental in this phase, and that is defiling the sanctuary. But before we see how it's done, let's discuss the sanctuary system to understand just what they are defiling. Learning and understanding this tabernacle and sanctuary system through scripture is a gigantic job. The details are found throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, both Chronicles, Samuel, Psalms, Joshua, John, Hebrews, etc. Um, so I'm just going to walk us through it. And again, this is not Torah movement stuff. But the fact remains that knowing the tabernacle system unlocks most of the Bible for you. This system is all about Jesus Christ. Its uh, symbolism, its practical use, all of it is about salvation through Jesus Christ. Um, you see, Christ was a covenant all along. And the people who were there sacrificing sheep and doing all that were looking ahead to the promise of Jesus Christ. Now for us, we're looking back to the cross, but still looking ahead to his promise. But we're looking back to the cross. They were looking ahead to the cross. It was all about Jesus Christ all along, and we're going to show you how. Um, there were six items that were referred to as furniture here. Oh, and just so we know, a tabernacle is a tent. That is the mobile te uh, temple as they were going through the desert for 40 years. But once they got to Jerusalem, they made a stone temple. The whole system is the same. How they did things was the same. The layout's the same. It's all the same. So whether I say temple or tabernacle... One's a tent, one's made of stone, but it's the same setup, same thing. So, um, now the pieces of furniture start outside the tabernacle or outside the tent. And then they move to the inside of the uh, tabernacle or tent. And their alignment is in the fashion of a cross. Um, so let's get our mind's eye ready to imagine a great big rectangular fence with a very large tent sitting towards the rear of it. So you are standing at the east side of this rectangular compound, if you will. You're at the narrow end of the rectangle, rectangle, and as you look westward is the long ways of the rectangle, okay? Um, now you enter the gate from the east side. It's always on the east side. And here you come to the altar of burnt sacrifice, now you continue in a straight line to the west, just straight from the east to the west, straight line. You come to the bronze lavar. You're still outdoors here, by the way. This is important for later. Next, you proceed in this same straight line to the west, and you enter the first apartment of the tabernacle. This is the first room. This is called the holy place, and you arrive at the altar of incense, now you proceed on the same straight line through the veil, which is Jesus Christ's body torn on the cross, the veil that is hanging there. You go into the second apartment of the tabernacle. And now you are in the most holy place, or some people call it the Holy of Holies, and you find the Ark of the Covenant. This straight line from east to west through these four pieces of furniture creates the vertical part of the cross. Now you step back into the most holy place. You leave 
the holy of, or you, excuse me, you leave the most holy place and you step back into the holy place, into the first apartment, and you're back at the altar of incense. You're still looking towards the west. So that means to your right is the table of showbread, which is in the north. And you look to your left, which is south, and you find the seven-branched candlestick. Okay? You draw a line through them, you have your horizontal bar. So from the altar of incense all the way to the Ark of the Covenant, that was your vertical portion of the cross. And now from the table of showbread to the candlestick is the horizontal portion of the cross. Um, and so we had shown that in our Revelation series too, that when all the troops and all the people from the 12 tribes of Israel were listed and numbered and they depicted how they camped, they had to camp around the tabernacle, three tribes per camp. And they were only allowed to camp on the cardinal direction point. So north, south, east, and west, um, they had to camp there. And when you actually look at what tribes were situated where and how many people they had, you find that that was shaped like a cross as well. Because the, the group that was at the east side was really long. You know, and whatever. So that that showed a cross, and then the interior of it shows a cross. So this was about Jesus Christ all along. <clears throat> now we're going to look at how these pieces of furniture relate to salvation in Jesus Christ. Again, we start from the east gate entering into the courtyard. There's only one gate in, and only one door into the tabernacle or the temple. Jesus told us he is the door. So if you're outside that fence, you are not God's people in the old, you know, you're, you're a Gentile. But for us today, if you're outside that fence, you're a non-believer. It's when you believe in Jesus Christ that you, you come through that gate because of Jesus. And when you come through that gate, you come to the altar of burnt sacrifice. Okay, Um this is where the Jew would bring his lamb to be sacrificed. The priest would tie the lamb to the four horns of the altar, which represent the Gospels, and the Jew himself would kill the lamb. This station is uh, represents Jesus Christ on the cross and his once and for all sacrifice for us. Notice, the Jew slayed the lamb, not the priest. This is symbolic because we put Jesus Christ on that Christ, uh, Jesus Christ on that cross due to our wretchedness. Next, the priest takes a little piece of the charred lamb about the size of a pea and eats it. He internalizes our sin and Christ became our high priest that day and consumed our sins like the priest did. The next station is the bronze lavar. After the sacrifices were all complete, the priest would head here to wash off the blood and become ceremonially clean in order to enter into the tabernacle. This represents baptism and the cleansing of our sins. So these two stations make up justification or the salvation part of our journey. You see, that's why they're in the outside of the tabernacle. They're not in the holy place. They're not in the most holy place. They're in the courtyard because that is where your <coughs> justification begins. You believe in Jesus Christ on the cross. Then you are baptized in repentance. 
That is justification as it works together. Now, some people say you don't need to get baptized. We're going to cover that here in a little bit. Um, but the sanctuary system tells us what we need to know. So next, the priest heads for the tabernacle and enters into the holy place. Now, this is where, you know, again, one door. You can't enter that unless you're in Jesus Christ. You can't go into the holy place. Um, but the holy place is where sanctification happens. This is where you start becoming more like Jesus. This is where you start growing and maturing as a Christian and growing in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is where sanctification happens, the holy place. Um, I'm going to stop describing the priest's jobs here and just save that for the sanctuary series in season two. Um, But now we're just going to look at the functions of the furniture in the holy place. To the right or the north, we have the table of showbread. This represents the Word of God, Scripture. In the center, we have the altar of incense. This represents our prayers and supplications to God. And to the south, we have the candlestick, which represents the church being the light of the world and evangelizing. Finally, we pass through the veil. We're now leaving the holy place of sanctification, and we go into the most holy place, the veil representing Christ's body, which was torn for us. Um allowing us to go into the presence of God. And here we find the Ark of the Covenant in between the golden bowl of manna, symbolizing God's providence, uh, and Aaron's rod that budded, symbolizing God's authority and discipline, were the two tablets of stone on which God's finger inscribed the law that has been violated by all men, Romans 3.23. The breaking of that law is sin, 1 John 3.4, and the penalty for sin is death, Romans 6.23. But notice, uh, the ark has what's called a mercy seat. This is not his throne. It's our Revelation study shown that's on the sides of the north, a table of showbread in the Mount of Congregation. But this is where the final blood sacrifice happened. It represents Christ's blood being an intercessor or barrier protecting us from God's judgment on which um, is inside the ark. So the second apartment, the most holy place, is where judgment happens. Okay? Then the dimensions, this is this is too much for this study, but I can't help it. The dimensions of the ark are the same as the four-horned altar, meaning that his mercy is as great as his judgment. The sizes are the same. This is where Jesus is now as our high priest according to the 2300-day prophecy. Uh, regarding that, regarding uh, cleansing the sanctuary in Daniel, um, judgment is not upon its his return. It's in the probation time before Michael stands up or ceases his intercession. Standing up means to stop doing, to cease his intercession. So, and again, you know, as Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, this is like the 120 years before God closed the door to the ark. <clears throat> the second apartment, the most holy place, then deals with glorification. So see how much can be gained from studying the sanctuary system? And this is just a tiny bit. There's so much more. But I know people say he's sitting at the right hand of God right now. The prophet, he went to heaven. He was pulled up to heaven. But the prophecy says that he entered, he was cleansing the sanctuary this Understanding what cleansing the sanctuary means tells us that after the 2300-day prophecy ended, he entered into the most holy place. Um, Okay, 
So now we see the journey of salvation through Christ is shown in the tabernacle system. Why does this matter? Because to mirror the first beast, the second beast must do the same things, right? Well, through its history, the Roman system and the papacy has attacked each piece of the furniture in various ways. In other words, they have defiled the sanctuary. Ezekiel gives us insight about defiling the sanctuary in Ezekiel 5.11. So as I live, declares the Lord, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with your detestable idols and all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw and my eye will have no pity and I will not to spare. Uh, Ezekiel 23.38 again They have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary. On the same day, they have profaned my Sabbaths. So here we see that they're bringing in abominations and idols. Um, The abominations can be, you know, heretical practices and so forth. They have the idol worship. Um, In 2338, Ezekiel says that uh, they're profaning the Sabbath, which is breaking God's law. Our fallen Protestantism is starting to do the same thing. And we're going to see through this study, but first we have to examine how the papal system did it first. Once we see what the papal system did, we'll understand what these heretical false teachers are coming behind them doing, but in a different way. So the gate leading in and the altar burnt, I don't know what, I don't know, I, I think that's a misplaced note. So, um, let's see. The Catechism of the Holy See, 1987. The grace of the Holy Spirit has the power to justify us. That's false. Um, That is to cleanse us from our sins. Okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one but separate. We know this. The The three are one but separate. This statement here is all wrong. Grace comes from the Father. Justification comes through Jesus. And sanctification comes from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the door, not the Holy Spirit. No man shall come to the Father but through me, says Jesus. We will see that meshing sanctification and justification together is a huge problem. And we will discuss further in our next stations. But they were doing this. They they were doing this in their catechism, saying the Holy Spirit is your justification. That is incorrect. Um, They also say that it's not by Christ's blood, but by his works that we are saved. So it becomes works-oriented, but works are not part of sanctification. I'm sorry, works are part of sanctification. They're not part of justification. Um, Then they derive the Eucharist. This is their weekly communion at Mass where they claim that the bread uh, transforms into Christ's actual flesh and the wine is actual blood, thereby thereby crucifying him over and over though his sacrifice was once and for all, according to Scripture. So they they sacrifice him every week. Um, Then we have penance. Through history, you could purchase indulgences. Indulgences would uh, free a sinner in purgatory or hell and allow them into heaven. It could also be used in a get-out-of-jail freestyle for future yet uncommitted sins, thereby denying Christ is the only way to heaven. This is why in our Revelation study, we revealed that the papacy was resent, uh, represented in the pale horse. The pale, it's pale because it's bloodless. They removed Christ's blood as a necessity for salvation. Um, this would also equate to the church of Thyatira. The Reformation started to rebuild the furniture, however. So we see that in Catholicism, they have numerous ways where they attacked your salvation through Jesus Christ 
on the cross, which was attacking the altar of burnt sacrifice. Um, but the reformers, when they left the church, started to try to bring back these furniture pieces. So we have Martin Luther, who would bring back the truth that salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. Now the bronze lavar baptism. This one's huge. Roman system introduced baby sprinkling. This was their attack on baptism. Baptisms would be a are to be a public demonstration of your informed choice and belief in Christ. A baby is not capable of this. So why was this a target? Because it's part of the justification process, and through it you receive the Holy Spirit. And by receiving the Holy Spirit, that's part of the sanctifying part. But the sanctuary system, as laid out, directly contradicts those who will say that salvation is complete when you say your little sinner's prayer. The outer space, that all that outside stuff is about justification. The first apartment's about sanctification. Second apartment about glorification. So the Levar or baptism is a must. Why? Why? One, it's where sins are cleansed. Just as the priest did, he washed there too. That's the cleansing of your sins. The second, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens here. And I hear plenty of people bowing to cultural narratives um, that that isn't true. You receive the Spirit when you confess Christ. And to them I say, read Acts 2.38, which reads, Then Peter said unto them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized to cleanse your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's right there in Acts 2.38. Um, that's point blank, beloved. That's just the way it is. It's during on the laying of hands by a believer with the Holy Spirit that a new saint receives it. That's how you get it. It's by laying on hands during baptism. Um, some of you don't like that, though, don't you? Okay, so let's look at Acts 19. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them. So, and recall, it was during uh, baptism that Jesus received the Holy Spirit. And I know some were saying, but the apostles weren't baptized. Neither was John. So how did he give it to Jesus? If you're saying it's on by the laying on of hands. Well, I suggest we look at Luke 1.15. Gabriel, speaking of John, said, For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. So John was given it first. See how this system is playing out? See how this system is playing out? It was, it was set up in the beginning for this to happen. So John was in, indwelled by birth. Why would that happen? So he could baptize Jesus, for one, and the apostles. Jesus had to be the first and only to be indwelled with it in the beginning, right? 
So at Pentecost, the apostles already had the repentance baptism, which was looking forward to the new covenant. This explains why they were able to receive through, uh, through the tongues of fire the Holy Spirit. It wasn't by, they had already received this baptism. John, remember, was a voice in the wilderness sent to pave the way for Jesus. He was the setup man. So why is this indwelling so important? Because the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier. We showed in one of the last episodes that sanctification is making one holy and no one may see God um, unless he is holy. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot perform the activities of sanctification. Um, We will see once we enter the first department. And this is why the little horn power wants to destroy it. Proper immersion baptism would be back Uh, thanks to Baptist founders, John Smith and Roger Williams would restore the bronze lavar that the papacy had worked to destroy. So now we're in the holy place. Sanctification by the Holy Spirit happens in this room. Table of showbread. We have two stacks of six loaves of bread, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the word of God, scripture, a must for every saint. Notice two stacks of six. There are 66 books in scripture. Nothing has been removed like the false teachers want you to think. And this is the proof. There are two stacks of six. Scripture is showing right there, 66 books. Um, Many times throughout history, the papacy has banned scripture. They've attacked the table of showbread, the word of God, by banning it. Council of Toulouse, 1229 AD. Um, We prohibit laymen possessing copies of the Old and New Testament. We forbid them most severely to have the above books in the popular vernacular. The lords of the district shall carefully seek out the heretics in dwellings, hovels, forests, and even in their underground retreats and be entirely wiped out. Council of Trent, 1545 to 1564 placed the Bible on the list of prohibited books and forbade any person to read the Bible without a license from a Roman Catholic bishop or inquisitor. Uh, The council added these words, that if anyone shall dare read or keep in his possession that book without such a license, he shall not receive absolution till he has given up uh, to his ordinary. I don't know. I should have looked that up. I don't know what that one means. Pope Leo VII called the Protestant Bible the Gospel of the Devil in an encyclical letter in 1824. In January 1850, uh, he condemned Bible societies and admitted the fact that the distribution of Scripture was long been condemned by the Holy Chair or the Holy See. Um, Let's see, Pope Leo VIII declared, as it has been clearly shown by experience, that if the Holy Bible in the vernacular is generally permitted without any Distinction, more harm than utility, is thereby caused. John Wycliffe, one of our reformer heroes, also known as the Morning Star of the Reformation, brought back scripture by translating it back out of Latin into the language of the people. The altar of incense. Our prayer in private time with the Father. Here we confess our sins, ask forgiveness, seek guidance, praise his name, etc., replaced by the confessional. People confessing sins to a priest who they call father. 
Matthew uh, 23, 9, and call no man father upon the earth, for no one is your father, or for one is your father which is in heaven. John Calvin and the Presbyterians bring back prayer to the Father through Jesus Christ. So as the papacy attacked the altar of incense, then the Presbyterians brought that back into our consciousness. That was their special um, mission or purpose in the Reformation, if you will. So you notice that these the Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, so forth, they all had a different, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, burden. They had a different burden to bring to the people and a very specific focus that they went in after to try to bring these things back as the papacy was slowly destroying all of this stuff. And then we get to this uh, menorah or seven-branch candlestick. The church and its saints uh, being a light to the world, evangelizing through sharing the gospel, sharing God's love to the lost and teaching them that they are sinners and need a savior. So refusing to bow the knee to the Pope. Um, enter the Inquisitions. Those that would, uh, that would not conform to what the papacy wanted, that would share the gospel, that would say that he was actually the Antichrist as all of our Protestant uh, heroes and reformers uh, knew and believed. Um, for those people... Uh, he brings in the Inquisition led by the Jesuits. And of course, as you'll recall, it's Francisco Ribera, the Jesuit, who is the one that wrote the book that people are using in their seminaries today to try to understand Revelation and all the other prophecies. It's completely heretical. So, But anyone caught in any of these activities, especially denying papal authority, um, that the, pap- the Pope had the authority of Christ on earth, they were put to the stake. This includes um, such Reformation heroes as Jerome, Hus, Latimer, Cranmer, and others. These men, along with all the other Reformers, knew the papacy was the little horn power of the Antichrist. So how have we forgotten that? Hmm, I don't know. But John Wesley and the Methodists bring back evangelism. That is their special burden for the papacy trying to take down the seven-branch candlestick or the menorah. And finally, we arrive at the Ark of the Covenant, God's law, God's mercy. Of the little horn power, Scripture says, Daniel 7, 25, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, shall think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time, times, and the dividing of time. Hmm. First of all, haven't you already seen the fruit of this verse and what we already have said uh, with the wearing out of the saints, isn't that been pretty obvious so far? Um, but he'll change times and laws. The catechism has removed the second commandment, which is the one about idols. And they have filled their churches with idols, sun worship idols at that. By removing the second commandment, the fourth commandment or the Sabbath moves up to number three, um, and they change the time on the Sabbath commandment from Saturday to Sunday or the venerable day of the sun, sol invictus, which is Mithraism. And then they split the 10th commandment in two, in half, so they would still have 10 commandments after removing the second commandment. So they have changed times and law. Remember, the fourth commandment is a time, the seventh day, and a law. 
Um, and so this is, <laughs> some of you aren't going to like this one, but I, I speak highly of them anyway. But uh, some of you might debate this, but who restores this one from the papacy? That's the Seventh-day Adventists. That is their special burden to bring back the law and the testimony. Seventh-day Adventists, they bring this back. Um, and again, I know so many of you are just stuck on this, that they're Mormons, that they're Scientologists, that they're evil. And the only thing I can say to you is if there was an enemy out there that really didn't want truth being told, they would sure work pretty hard to try to throw whoever they didn't like under the bus, right? And even the Catholic Church, we've already quote, we've already given quotes. Catholic Church has already said, if you want to be a true Bible-believing Christian, the Seventh-day Adventists are the only ones left. You know, the papacy themselves say that. Now, you can say, well, why would we believe them if they're the Antichrist? Well, touche. I mean, you know, that's a that's a good comment. That's a good question. But they recognize it and basically again their whole point is we have the power to do whatever we want and they're proud of it they're not trying to hide the fact that they've changed these different laws they're saying that they have the power to do it and they're convincing people to believe that the pope's power to change something is greater than jesus's power to say it should stay the same that's and 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 they brag on it that and what what does it say? What does Daniel say? He will speak great and blasphemous blasphemous things against God. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, I am above all of this and I can do whatever I want here on earth. So there we have some of the ways that the little horn power in the Roman system have attempted to destroy the temple sanctuary furniture. Destroying our pathway to salvation. So we went through all of this to get an understanding of how this stuff will be mirrored in America's fallen Protestant churches. Um, the means will not always be the same. These false teachers today, they have new methods, but their targets are the same six pieces of furniture that the papacy tried to take out. And so in a, in a quick recap, so hopefully I made abundant sense that the six pieces of furniture that go to the tabernacle, go to the sanctuary system, show us the pathway of salvation through Jesus Christ. And it's entering that into the gate, which Jesus is the gate. It's coming to that altar of sacrifice, believing that Jesus Christ took the cross for our sins and resurrected three days later. And then going to the bronze lavar and being baptized for the remission or cleansing of your sins in repentance and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. So right there, those two stations, you you are justified, but now you have the Holy Spirit which prepares you for sanctification. And as you go into the tabernacle, as you go into the temple from this point, you come to the first apartment which is all about sanctifying you, making you more like Jesus, bringing you up to spiritual maturity, separating you from the world, making you the new creation. And you have the table of showbread, which is God's word, altar of incense, which is prayers, supplications, and communion with, with God anytime you want because the veil that was on just on the other side of it was removed. And then you have the 
seven branch candlestick where you become the light of the world and you evangelize and you do works for people uh, and you, you feed the poor and you do all these things and you show that being a Christian is different and why people want to know why is it different and why is this better than the way we're living and because they should be able to see it in you that being a Christian is better than not being and it draws them in because you are the light that was out in the darkness that led them to the gospel message, right? So all of this is sanctification. Then you go in with God's Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant where the high priest gives the final cleansing of the sanctuary and that is glorification. That's where that happens. So the papacy took great strides to undermine your salvation and now these new pastors, these new church movements, and they're doing it too. They might not be making a law that you're going to be hunted down and burnt at the stake for spreading the gospel, but they're going to give you a garbage gospel that doesn't make sense, that doesn't lead anyone to any kind of salvation. They're going to do these things that hurt you in your spiritual walk, in your sanctification, in your justification, they're going to attack any of this. And they do it different ways because all of us are a little bit different. Some of us can be manipulated in one way but not another. You know, The next guy might be manipulated in all the ways. It's just there's everybody's different and there's different processes at work that will go after all the different kinds of people. And where Scripture says that... Um, There will be a delusion so strong that even the the elect will be deceived. Don't fool yourself. We've talked about this before. Don't fool yourself because you are a saved believer that you cannot be deceived. That is not true. That is categorically false. You can be deceived. And yes, you have the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit in you. And you are justified in faith in Jesus Christ. But you can be led down the wrong way. You can turn your back on God and start wandering in a different path and yourself defile the sanctuary to the point where your salvation is no longer guaranteed. Remember, you have to you have to do the work yourself. You have to Jesus doesn't isn't just in auto forgive. And he's willing to forgive you for all of it, but You have to seek him for that, and you have to ask him for that. And then you have to repent, turn away from, forget that kind of activity and not live the lifestyle of it. I mean, there are are rules to all of this, you know, and they will have you believe, well, I said my sinner's prayer, didn't get baptized, whatever, but now I'm good. You know, it doesn't matter how many times I sin. I don't need to be praying about it it's fine it's already covered it'll just be covered that's that's wrong so anyway i hope everybody um got a good understanding of how the tabernacle system works how the tabernacle system was destroyed by the papacy how the reformers brought it back and how today in the beast of the earth America's fallen Protestantism, we will see these same pieces of furniture being attacked with the way these false teachers are working today. 
that is all. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, I hope this was fruitful and a blessing to everyone. And you guys have a great day. Take care.